Um, I want to talk a little bit this morning about expectations. So have you ever walked into like a scenario or an experience or an event or whatever with this idea of how something was going to go in your mind and it totally went the opposite way and you kind of felt disappointed or whatever? I think everybody, yes, everybody has had some kind of expectation that was not met. So do you guys remember on social media, I think it was a couple of years ago, those like expectation versus reality memes were like the thing. So like, you know, this is what I expected to, you know, see when I got my hair cut. And this is what it actually turned out to look like. I once got a haircut so bad that I immediately left that salon and went to a different salon to get it redone by somebody else. Um, parenting. I mean, nobody can really prepare you for what it's like to be a parent. You know that, like, you're not going to sleep really well for a while. You know that there are things that people tell you to expect. There are books that tell you what to expect, but you can never really prepare yourself. But this hit me really hard when I saw this because I was one of those parents who swore that I would not co-sleep, not because I don't believe in co-sleeping, but because I like my space when I sleep. And Junia slept in our bed for the first seven months of her life because she would not sleep anywhere else. And so, and that was my life, foot and face. You know, I maybe slept two hours at a time for many, many months in a row. Um, or a negative travel experience when you expect to see something world-renowned, and it turns out like this. Um, I, um, Josh and I went on a, uh, a 60th birthday surprise trip for my mom to Paris, France a couple of years ago. Well, when we were there, we visited the Louvre, and the day before we went to the Louvre, we had visited the Museum d'Orsay, which is another wonderful, like, world-renowned art museum, and it was beautiful and quiet and like just a wonderful experience. And so we went to the Louvre the next day and there were literally droves of tour groups like plowing you down, pushing you out of the way. And so when we got to the Mona Lisa, you know, you kind of expect like, like to be just consumed and like to be awed and moved by this piece of art. But people don't really go to look at the Mona Lisa. They go now to like take a selfie with Mona Lisa. And so um, to get close enough to really look at it, you have to wait in line for like 30 minutes and push past these crowds of people just to get close enough to see. And it's really kind of disappointing and underwhelming. Although if you're looking at the Mona Lisa and you turn around, there is a magnificent picture or painting of the wedding at Cana, which is, uh, will leave you moved and odd. So if you are ever at the Louvre um, or if you ever return to the Louvre, if you've been there already, I would recommend spending some time looking at that one. But part of life is, you know, things don't always live up to our expectations. You know, we think, think that things are going to go a certain way or that a relationship is going to evolve a certain way or that an event is going to, you know, to, to fly, and it doesn't. And these expectations can vary from, you know, a simple experience like visiting a new place or eating at a new restaurant or getting a haircut or um, entering into a new job or into a new relationship. And that's where having unmet expectations can really be damaging, is um, in relationships. Um, most people will tell you that unmet expectations are the primary killer of relationships, not just romantic relationships, um, although like things like finances and sex and whatnot are like, they're symptoms 
of a bigger problem. They're symptoms of unmet expectations. Um, any kind of strife, any, anything that really happens in relationships, any disappointment really is a symptom of an unmet expectation that just hasn't been expressed. Causes breakdowns in communication when we don't express those expectations, but most of the time we just expect that other people know or assume that, that, um, that they should know what we expect of them because we don't communicate very well. But even when we do express those expectations and we think that we're clear, um, people aren't always going to level up with what we expect of them all the time. So um, today we are going to turn to Micah chapter 6, um, which is our text, Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And what we find, if we look a little bit closer at this text, is that this really is an example of unmet expectations. So I'm going to read this text, and then we're going to kind of dive in a little bit. Starting in verse 1, it says, Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So historically speaking, Micah is, um, he's one of the minor prophets. This book is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, This setting takes place in the 8th century before Christ. The Assyrian Empire is the dominant power uh, in this time. Babylon really hadn't come onto the scene yet, although there are are kind of hints of the, the, the Babylonian Empire getting ready to kind of take power in the next little bit. Hezekiah, most people agree, is the king. So a lot's happening in this time. There's a lot of really significantly historical and cultural things that are happening during Micah's time. The most important thing is, Josh talked a little bit about this last week, there are just king after king after king after king in Israel that is just evil, um, that does immoral things and unjust things. Um, So Israel has once again, under the rule of its immoral and evil kings, intermingled with the surrounding nations against God's commands, um, not because he doesn't like the other people, but because the tendency is to succumb to the influences, the practices, and the idols of the surrounding nations. And so Israel has done that once again. And so throughout the first five chapters of Micah, God confronts them with their sins of injustice, which he lists as oppressing the poor, their self-indulgence, and their pride. So chapters 1 through 5 alternate between God accusing the Israelites of their evil, the coming judgment for their sin of injustice, 
and pronouncements of the coming Messiah, who would come to redeem and restore what has been defiled and broken and maimed by the consequences of sin. So when we come to chapter 6, the first two verses, Micah is sort of um, depicting this courtroom scene. God and Israel are in controversy, and God is bringing charges against them. And he invites, we see this language where God invites all of nature to be witnesses to what's happening here. Which is not uncommon for the, the poets of the Old Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament, to, to speak like this. It, it's very poetic. But it also has this connotation of, look, all of the world take note of what I'm saying right now. All of the world pay attention. This is really important for you to hear. And then God briefly recounts all he's done for them. He sends them leaders in Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He delivers them from the Moabite king Balak as they made their way through the wilderness. And then he ushers them into the promised land itself. And God says, look, here's my case against you. We're going to put it on the table. We're going to talk about what's going on right now because we're not just going to sweep these things under the rug. Listen closely to what I have to say to you because you're going to need to remember this later. What have I done to you, Israel? How have I burdened you? I rescued you from Egypt. I brought you out of slavery after 400 years. Have you forgotten where you've come from? Have you forgotten what I rescued you from? Have you forgotten who you are? You need to not forget your history because the way that you're living is not representative of who I am. The rhetoric that God uses in this text really seems to indicate that the people of Israel have been complaining about God's expectations of them. It's too much, God. It's too much to live under these rules. It's too much to do what you've asked us to do. And so Israel's response isn't much different than our response when we're faced with somebody whose expectations we have not met. When are you going to be satisfied, God? What can we do to make you happy? Can we bring you thousands of, of lambs, thousands of rams to be sacrificed? 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Can we give our firstborn? What can we do to make you happy? And so this is really kind of tongue-in-cheek and sarcastic on Israel's part. But one of the many injustices that God confronts them with that they've committed throughout this um, throughout this, this book of Micah, is that they have hoarded wealth for themselves. They've oppressed the poor in their community. And so while this is kind of tongue-in-cheek, this text is sort of saying, should we take all of the things that we've stolen from people and sacrifice it to God so that he will forgive us of our sin? All of the things that we have done to oppress the poor, let's just take all the things that we've stolen from them and ripped off of them, and let's give it to God as a sacrifice so that our sins will be, atten so that our sins will be atten uh, atoned for. And then we come to this famous verse of 6-8. It says, look, I've shown you what is good. This is what I require of you. I don't require your riches. I don't require sacrifices. I don't require that you give me your precious commodities. I don't want your wealth. All I want is for you to live justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with me. So these, as believers, these are God's expectations of us. But the thing about God is that he doesn't just assume that, that we know what he wants of us. He's really good about communicating it and re-communicating it and re-communicating it all throughout history. This is what we see is that he's always pulling Israel back. He made this covenant with Abraham that, um, that he would make Abraham into a mighty nation with descendants that, that could not be counted among the stars. And 
But Abraham knows what he's getting into. Abraham knows what God expects. And so it's not like God says, all right, I'm going to rope you into this covenant, and then I'm going to make you do all these things that you haven't agreed to. No, 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 that's not how God works. God expresses and communicates his, his expectations, which is that we, we live upright lives, that we as God's people reflect who God is to the people around us. So in all of, all of Israel's history, they struggled with one of two things. Either they, um, they, they um, what's the word that I'm looking for? They so rigidly followed the laws and the commands of God um, that they missed the very spirit of the law itself and that they didn't truly understand the character and the essence of God. So they followed so strictly and so religiously these, these laws and these sets of rules thinking that they were doing the right thing that they missed God himself and what God was doing, the actual character and the love of God. Or they abandoned God's commands altogether and they embraced the idols and the lifestyles of the people around them. So in Micah 6.8, what God is saying to them is this, I've already told you what I expect of you. You know what I expect of you. It's all throughout the scriptures, the laws and the prophets, that you follow without really understanding what you're doing. You follow these laws without really understanding my heart behind them. It's just this simple. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with me. So if we kind of look at these three things, acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly, um, what does it mean to act justly? I think understanding this requires a biblical understanding of justice and um, and justice by God's definition. We tend to understand justice and how it plays out in the context of our own culture and systems. So justice for the most part in our culture is mostly punitive. We think of like the, you know, if, let me back up a little bit. If we think of the word justice, we think of things like the Statue of Liberty. We think of a courtroom. Um, we think of, you know, superheroes. Um, you know, Lego movie, how do you get better than that? Uh, but if someone's committed a crime and has been charged and given punishment or time served, we say that justice has been done. So justice is mostly punitive. You know, you do a crime, you pay the time, you do community service, whatever. If somebody has, has had a crime committed against them, we say they don't receive justice unless that person is convicted and, and has to pay their time. That's kind of our cultural understanding of justice, you know, crime and punishment. But the overarching narrative scripture defines justice as the restoration of something that's been broken. So God's justice all throughout scripture is, is restorative. It's not punitive. He doesn't come to punish. He comes to restore things that have been broken. By God's definition, justice always seeks to restore broken people by bringing freedom and salvation from their oppression and their captivity. And the greatest workings of this, the greatest manifestation and example of God's justice, it plays out with the coming of Jesus. It plays out in the life that he lived, the way that he treated people, the way that he restored people, even in his interactions with them. And it culminated in his death and his resurrection, which, which provides for the salvation uh, of everyone in the world who would believe in him, bringing restoration for their lives, restoration to the world itself. The scriptures talk about the, the coming restoration and the renewal of, of the earth itself. And so true justice is not 
we're going to receive punishment for our sin, but true justice is God saying, I'm going to come and restore and redeem the things that have been broken. Those who have been abused, I'm going to come and, and, and bring restoration to your life and healing to your life. All of the consequences and the, 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 the festering and the breakdown of our cultures and lives and, and people and systems, God is going to come and bring restoration to those things. And true justice is self-sacrificing. We see this in Jesus. Jesus came and he sacrificed himself to bring restoration to humanity and, and to the world. So most of the time, I am willing, you know, if, if we really kind of evaluate, I am willing to act justly so long as it benefits me. So long as I don't have to really sacrifice my comfort, I don't have to really lay down my rights, I don't have to really, it doesn't really cost me anything to act justly, it's easy. It's easy for me to do acts of justice. It's easy for me to give to organizations that do justice. It's easy for me to do things that I consider just when it doesn't really cost me anything. But living a lifestyle of true justice requires self-emptying. It's not self-aggrandizing or self-protective, but it's self-emptying. Jesus came to die for the guilty, not for the innocent. Exemplifying this life of meekness and humility when he was confronted with abuse and false accusations. So where this becomes even more difficult is not just when justice is inconvenient or uncomfortable, but when an injustice has been done against me. My nature is to react harshly and in defense of myself. And that's natural. That's built into us. That's, we have this... We have this inner um, kind of drive to protect ourselves and to guard ourselves. And when we've been hurt by somebody, to not let it happen again. But Philippians 2, in, in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Paul says that in your relationships with one another, I want you to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who didn't take his equality with God, even though he was in very nature God, didn't take his equality with God, to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So we understand, like, the way of God is completely and totally countercultural to the way that our world and our culture lives and our world lives to what they say is normal or healthy or even what the world understands as just. When the world's justice is punitive, ours is restorative. So we're called to live life a little bit differently, to forgive when people don't apologize to us, to return evil with good, which is really hard to do. It's literally, it's, it's killing the flesh when we do that, honestly. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm talking to a room of believers here, so you guys understand what that means, to, to kill the flesh to return evil with good, and not to rush to defend ourselves when our rights have been violated or threatened. And as believers and followers of Jesus, we, we live a lifestyle that's different. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural to the point where it, it appears foolish sometimes. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians that God chooses these foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So as, God's, as, as counterintuitive as God's ways are when we live like this, when we live in the way that God has called us to live, people are surprised to the point that they think that we are foolish or naive or 
that we simply let people take advantage of us. And it's not taking advantage. It's not being taken advantage of when you understand that living justly means to sometimes lay down your rights, to not have to defend yourself when an injustice is done against you, but living to bring restoration to other people. Loving mercy. Um, Several years ago, about 10 or 12 years ago, I worked um, for the U.S. Forest Service um, at a national recreation area in Kentucky, and I had this coworker um, who was a, a lay pastor, and he, I don't, I don't even know what he did, I don't even remember what he did at the Forest Service, but uh, he was a believer, he was a lay pastor as well, and, and he would come by my desk all the time, and we would just have these conversations. I was a new believer at the time, and we just have all these conversations about God and about faith, and he told me, he would tell me all these stories. He was someone who just saw miracles and visions all the time from the Lord, and, and he came to my desk one day, and he said, you know, the other night this thing happened to me, and um, he said, you know, for a few months now, I have had some, some troubles in my, one of my friendships with this person, and this person had, um, had done something to really hurt him in this relationship. And he said, man, I, you know, it's been somebody that I trusted for a really long time. And I had a hard time, I've had a really hard time coming to grips with being able to extend forgiveness to this person. It was, it was that deep, that it was just one of those injuries that's hard. It's hard to extend mercy to somebody. And he said, but a couple of nights ago, in the middle of the night, God woke me up, and all he said to me was, I give you mercy every single day. And he said, I woke up, and I, all of a sudden, he said, I was so aware of my absolute inability to save myself, my spiritual condition, my need for God, my need for God's mercy on a daily basis. And he said, it shook me. And so the first thing that I did in that morning was I called this guy and I asked um, for his forgiveness and extended forgiveness to him. But mercy isn't a license to allow people to continue hurting you. You know, boundaries are extremely necessary, and that's a whole different conversation for another day. I'm all about boundaries, but at its heart, mercy extends forgiveness and grace when it's undeserved, as Christ has extended grace and mercy to us when we were not deserving. In the same manner in which we received mercy from Christ, we are expected to extend the same mercy and the same spirit to others. So in essence here, when God says love mercy... He's saying, extend to others the mercy that you have received and wish to continue receiving from me. The parable of the unmerciful servant is um, one of the best examples of mercy in the scriptures that I know. Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 18 about a king who wanted to settle his debts with people who owed him money. And so he brings before him this man who owes him, it says 10,000 bags of gold or 10,000 talents. And just for reference, 10,000 bags of gold is 200,000 years worth of wages. So imagine, just imagine all the billionaires in America owing you everything that they have and not being able to pay it back. That's how much 10,000 bags of gold is, plus some, I, I would imagine. So he brings his man before him, and this man says, he, 
he, uh, he says, I can't pay the money back. I don't have the money. What do you do with 10,000 bags of gold? I don't know. But this king threatens to throw him and his entire family in prison. And he gets on his knees and he begs for mercy. And he says, I will pay it back as soon as I get it. Please have mercy on me. And so this king has compassion for this man. He cancels all of his debts, 200,000 years worth of wages, and says, go on your way. All your debt is forgiven. So we know this man goes on, uh, and he finds uh, this other man who owes him 100 days worth of wages. So not even a half a year, not even six months worth of wages. And he demands that he be paid what he's owed immediately. And this man, of course, as, as we know, falls on his knees and says, I'm so sorry, I don't have the money. Will you please have mercy on me? I'll pay it back when I can. So the man has him thrown in prison, he and his entire family, and he says, you will be in prison until you can pay it back. And it occurs to me, how do you earn money while you're in prison? You know, how do you earn money while you're in prison to, to pay back? You can't. And so essentially, this poor man is in prison, maybe for the rest of his life. I don't know, he and his entire family. And so the people, the, the witnesses who have witnessed this man, who has been forgiven much, not forgive, not have mercy on somebody else who, who owed much less, and they were furious. So they go to this king and they say, look what this man has done. You forgave him all of this money. And he's not forgiven the debt of somebody who owed him barely six months' worth of wages. So this king brings him before him, and he says, I had mercy on you. Why wouldn't you have mercy on these? Why wouldn't you have mercy on this man? And Jesus ends his parable with, I canceled all your debt because you begged me to. And you should have mercy, too, on your fellow servant. So the key to understanding parables is that they teach one principal truth. And obviously we know it's a parable, it's a story. Jesus is using, um, you know, terms and, and words and examples that are well understood at the time to, be, to, to communicate this truth of mercy. So God is, as God has had mercy on us, he therefore expects us to have mercy on our fellow servants. So these first two commands for justice and mercy they're at the center of the entire faith of the Israelites. Because the first command concerns a love of neighbor, acting justly, and the second concerns a love of God, extending mercy as we have received mercy. And so the entire message of the Old Testament is summed up in these two commandments, as Jesus says, quotes in the, in the New Testament a couple of times, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So when we look at Micah 6, verse 8, we see this is what God is saying. All of the law and the prophets is summed up in this command, love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And by seeking justice for others and extending mercy, as we understand justice being restorative and, and receiving mercy, therefore we extend mercy, what we find is that we ourselves are restored. When we seek to restore other people, we ourselves are restored. Proverbs 11.25 says, A generous person will prosper, and he who refreshes others will themselves be refreshed. I find that so, um, as I really wrestled this week with this passage, that's the thing that really kept, it, it stuck with me and impacted me the most, is that when we seek to be restorers of people, we ourselves find restoration. And of course, God is the one ultimately who restores, but we are refreshed 
when we extend mercy and justice to people as God has extended justice and mercy to us. Even when it's unfair and it doesn't, it's inconvenient or it's hard or we have to lay things down. We have to lay down our comforts or our resources or our rights and, and sacrifice things that's hard to do. We find ultimately that, that we find restoration and healing in that. And lastly, Jesus says to walk humbly. There are some things in Scripture that can be interpreted in various ways, and there are some things in Scripture that all of the best theologians in the entire world don't agree on. But pride is not one of those things. There are passage after passage after passage after passage in Scripture. God makes it really crystal clear what he thinks about pride. Pride comes before a fall. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. God opposes the proud. The Lord detests the proud. It's better to be lowly in spirit with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Jesus tells parables about proud people, and there's countless examples in Scripture about people who are dealt with harshly because of their arrogant pride. The kind of pride we're talking about, obviously, isn't, you know, you're proud of your kids for their achievements, or, you know, you're proud of, of, of your company or your church for doing something great in the community, but it's this kind of self aggrandizing, self-elevating pride that God can't stand, the belief that one is higher than another, um, and a disregard for people that hold a, a lower position in society or in their profession. And we see in the Pharisee and the tax collector, this pride versus humility demonstrated when the, the, the Pharisee, the religious teacher of Israel, comes before God and says, Thank God that I'm not like this tax collector. Thank you, Lord, that you have made me who I am. Thank you that I'm not as lowly as this person over here. Thank God. Praise you, Jesus. You are so good. Thank you that you've not made me like this person. And this tax collector over here who is beating his chest, maybe in shame, in repentance, I don't know, and is begging for mercy because he is a sinner. And this is the the ultimate kind of um, dichotomy that, that we face in our lives, I guess, every day is that we wrestle in our own flesh, in our own hearts, in our own minds with, um, with this kind of war between our pride and, and, and what God calls us to do, which is to be humble. And it takes humility to extend mercy to somebody especially when they don't deserve it. It takes humility to extend justice to people when we've been hurt. It's really easy to champion a cause that somebody else is leading and to, to give money to those things, and, and those things are good. You know, I, I support lots of good causes, but, but those aren't true acts of justice for us. Acts of justice are... restorative for the people that are in our lives. Whatever that looks like. It requires frequently laying down our own preferences and sometimes our own rights for the benefit of others to make restoration possible for them. And so as God speaks to us this morning about these expectations that he has of us to act justly, to advocate for the poor and weak ones among you, even if it costs us something, to love mercy, extending the same mercy to others that God has extended to us, even when it's really difficult. Paul and, uh, and Annie, whoever's um, going to close us out in worship, you all can, can come on up.
to walk humbly, humbly. Don't make the same mistakes that the, that the religious people of the Bible have made. Sometimes we need to take a back seat or take on a task that's outside of our scope of work, cleaning a toilet or mopping a floor or whatever that might look like in your sphere of influence in your job or your organization or your church or your family. So here's what I want us to do as we kind of close in worship, but also throughout this next week. I want us to, to really spend some time this coming week evaluating our relationships. So we kind of talked about unmet expectations at the beginning and how these um, really affect our relationships and how it, it really causes the majority of the brokenness um, in our relationships with people, whether that's a spouse or a, a family member or a child or a coworker or a boss, a church member. And I want us to kind of ask the Lord, um, where are the issues that are in my relationships? And are there unmet expectations on my part? Have people disappointed me? And also evaluating what is my responsibility in this relationship? Do I have expectations of other people that are maybe unreasonable or expectations that I have just maybe not communicated well? Maybe I need to re-communicate or maybe I need to, to communicate for the first time. And so kind of evaluating these relationships as we go this week, spending time with the Lord, really asking, are there places in my relationships, in a relationship that I need to mend, that I need to take responsibility for? So here's the thing about expectations. There are three things. Expectations have to be reasonable. We can't expect people to do the impossible. So whatever that looks like for a spouse or a friend or a parent or whatever, are your expectations of other people reasonable in the sense that they can carry those things out? Have they been clearly communicated? Don't expect people to read your mind and assume that you know what they expect of you if you haven't communicated that. And number three, they have to be agreed upon. So in order for us to go back to that person and say, look, I have felt hurt because of, of this reason because I, I feel disappointed or, or I feel like you're not pulling your weight in this relationship, have, has that person agreed upon that expectation or have we been assuming all this time that they know what we want without really having expressed it or communicated it? And then how can we really be, how can we begin to bring restoration to a difficult relationship in our lives? How can we extend justice and mercy to somebody that may or may not deserve it in our life, but how, how can we begin to bring restoration to a relationship that's, that's having difficulty? And maybe asking, have we been too proud to admit our own wrongdoings or to ask forgiveness or to apologize to somebody else? This is the part about walking with God is allowing him to kind of speak to us about these things, about these relationships and the things that are happening in our lives, the expectations that we have. We're not doing this alone. He's with us. And this is the thing about God. 
We can't have unreasonable expectations for people, but we can have unreasonable expectations of God. And he can handle that. And he may not follow through on everything that we ask, but if he doesn't, it's because it's not according to his will. It's not for our benefit. So this is to encourage you. I hope that this hasn't been too much of a challenge, but to encourage you, everything that God does in our lives is to bring restoration to us. So every time we're confronted with our own sin or every time we're confronted with something that we need to repent of or to change or to adapt in our lives, it is always only to bring restoration to us. And so that we can also begin to bring restoration to other people. And so God's justice, don't confuse it with his judgment. God's justice is to bring hope and life and healing and restoration where there are wounds, where there's hurt, where there's bitterness, where there's anger. He can handle all of that. And we can't, we can't expect too much of him. We can't expect too much healing. We can't expect for him to move too much or too frequently. We can't expect for him to do something too big. So if, if we're going to have unreasonable expectations of anybody, let it be God. But we still have to communicate it, right? We still have to communicate with God. This is what I'm hoping that you will do. And not because we can convince God to do something that he doesn't already want to do, but because he brings us along in what he's already working toward. The restoration of our world, the restoration of our own lives, the restoration of our relationships, the mending of things that have been broken. And this, this is the power of God. And as a community, as an organization, as a church, as we move forward, this is something that, um, that we're really praying that we will be united in together is, is bringing hope and restoration and healing to the communities around us, to be an agent of justice for the world. And when we don't have the power to do something, God does. And so we pray that God would come and move among us. That God would teach us when we lack knowledge or experience and how to bring justice to people. How to act justly in circumstances when we don't really know what to do. So that's our challenge for this week. Is to just spend some time with the Lord and evaluate the relationships that you have and ask him to help you identify what is one relationship that you can begin bringing some restoration to. Would you stand with me as we close? If we can pray with you, we're happy to do so. If you just want to pray on your own, um, we're happy to to encourage you in any way that we can. We love you guys. And um, as we close this morning, um, we just pray for you. We pray for you this week that God would move powerfully in your life. Let's worship him together.